This is how we overcome it. Moving on, keep it done. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are a little ways into a new series this summer uh, that has been taking a look at things that everybody knows are in the Bible that turn out to not actually be in the Bible. And we began this series with a couple of uh, well-known sayings and phrases that really aren't in there even in a uh, half-quotable form at all. Things like, God helps those who help themselves, or the notion of, if you had prayed harder or had more faith, then X or Y or Z would have happened. Um, but today we're going to hit a little closer to home with something that is kind of half, sort of, maybe, possibly, sounds like something in the Bible. Where are we going to go today? So today we're going to be looking at the phrase, money is the root of all evil, which isn't that the truth? Like we live in a capitalist society mm-hmm. and a lot of the brokenness that is in our society, I often think can be pointed towards money. So like, and I think that that rings true for a lot of people today. So surely this phrase, money is the root of all evil is not only true, but also in the Bible, which makes it even more true somehow. (laughs) And this is going to be one of those places I suspect where we're we're going to land at a place of nuance rather than just it's all wrong or it's all right, because the the as we'll quickly discover, the phrase money is the root of all evil isn't exactly word for word in the scriptures, but it comes from a, a sort of a misremembering of a phrase from late in the New Testament. And certainly Jesus and other voices in the New Testament are awfully critical or cautious about the dangers of money and wealth and the way they pull us away from God. Um, so it's not that we're going to end up with, yay, money is always awesome. Uh, as our final conclusion either, but more of a what is that line and what does it actually say and um, what does it not actually say is probably where we're going to land, right? Yeah. So maybe we should start with and just sort of like get this, pull the Band-Aid right off. If people remember having heard the line, money is the root of all evil before, where did they get it from or what have we half remembered? So this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Um, and as as we've said, this is very, the love of money is the root of all evil is very, very close, but just uh-huh. slightly off. First Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So instead of just money is all is unilaterally bad. First Timothy adds the love of money, the sort of mm-hmm. like the, this quest after the seeking after that kind of thing. Um, and that instead of saying everything that's evil can be traced back to money, the the phrasing all kinds of evil almost carries that like colloquial expression in English. When we say all kinds, it doesn't necessarily mean every, but like a whole variety. Like, man, you can find all sorts of different ways. Even when I say it that way in English, all sorts of different ways doesn't mean everything everywhere, but a wide variety of kinds of evil or a wide variety of kinds of ways you can go wrong. So it's not that the letter uh, that we call First Timothy is saying money is actually good and we've been mishearing it as money is bad, but it's mm-hmm. saying that the love of money is at the root of an awful lot of 
terrible things that human beings do, right? Maybe this would be a place for us to jump in and say, well, what are other voices from the New Testament have to say about the idea of the love of money or the pursuit of wealth as a goal in and of itself and to see if that fleshes this out? Are there other scriptural places that come in mind or voices that come to mind that suggest uh, maybe a, a way to flesh out what's going on in First Timothy? So I, I often think of Matthew 6. I think it's Matthew 6, where um, Jesus is talking about how no one can serve two masters. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, either love of money or God. Like, you can't serve both. One of them is going to need to be a higher priority. And if God isn't your priority, then the other master is whatever that is for you like i think that that um now i'm i'm blanking because i don't have this in front of me um does jesus actually spell out what the two masters might be or is he just saying you can't serve two masters yeah he ends up by the end of that passage saying you cannot serve god and he personifies money almost like a deity or a being called mammon um, and ah, okay. a, lo- a lot of translations in English will say that's confusing. Nobody knows what mammon is. So we'll just translate it as wealth. Um, but uh, well, this is actually one of those places where uh, the original language in the in the Greek carries a, a, a heftier sort of this isn't just like uh, dollar bills are wicked or shekels are bad, but almost this sort of personified, almost like a powers and principality sense of like there's a personified evil uh behind wealth or money um almost like you would be devoted to a deity like you could worship zeus or apollo or uh poseidon in the ancient world or the living god the god of abraham and isaac and jacob and that god jesus sort of posits that there's god and there's this personified reality called wealth that almost has its own aims or its own agency in the world I, I love the idea of taking Matthew six and no one can serve two masters and expounding upon it of like, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be wealth in the way that we think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things of in, in many things in life, when you're trying to balance different obligations or um, different jobs or whatever, you're never going to be able to hold all of the things in equal balance all the time. Something is going to have to have higher priority. And like that something like of what has higher priority can change depending on what's going on in, in your context or your life or, or, or whatever. But it's, but I think it's very true. You can't serve two masters and it, you know, I don't think that you have to necessarily define those two masters in the exact same way that jesus is is to have this still be true of like you can't like it's a very difficult thing to do right maybe, Whether- maybe that maybe that gets at uh the 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 whole idea that the, the reason that the love of money as the example becomes such a terrible thing is because it ends up being one more way we substitute something else in the place of God. And mm-hmm. to go back to that insight we've probably referenced here before, um, 
uh, Martin Luther says in the catechism that uh, whatever you love and trust the most is your God. You know, whether whether it's a statue of a golden calf that you actually bow down to or something in your wallet or some abstract concept or whatever, whatever we give our deep our, our whole selves to whatever we most deeply uh, give our energy and attention and time and trust to has become our God. And that money, maybe more so than a lot of other stuff in our lives holds a lot of the qualities we look for in a god in that it offers security and it offers um reliability and um it it offers faithfulness that it will be there for you and it won't lose value i mean like there's an awful lot that it seems to offer um and unlike the real living god who refuses to be a genie and do whatever we want money does whatever i tell it to if it's my five dollar bill i can spend it however i want and the power that it has to buy stuff is up to me so it makes an awfully appealing kind of a god um and go ahead and i think that same way money is comfortable like if you have money it can bring you comfort in ways that god is actually like is counter counter to what god is asking us to do right, right? like um I have served a variety of different churches in different contexts at this point in my ministry. And, you know, there are some of the contexts that I have served have been pretty rural and like they are very uncomfortable with the idea of going to what they perceive as inner city to help their brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. Like they're very like that was a very uncomfortable idea to them to actually go to these places and like meet the uh, folks who are living very differently than they are um, and be in relationship like that was is a very uncomfortable idea for them. What is more comfortable is the idea of being able to just give money to an organization who will do that work for them. Mm -hmm. And it, like. And I think that this is something that I, as a pastor, hold intention often of right. like giving money to a cause and to an organization isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like mm -hmm. oftentimes, like pooling money and resources to a central organization who knows what they're doing, is in relationship, knows what the needs are, they can often do a lot more good than I, as a small congregation's pastor, could do yeah but yet money is not a substitute for relationship mm -hmm. and may maybe that's it is that um if if i'm trying to use money in a way that it sort of assuages my guilt that i've you know given charitably to some people but now i don't have to actually sit down at the table with them or uh, view them as neighbors i've missed using money if it's how do we get a bigger bang for a buck and actually do more good uh, yeah, if we pool our money and send it, the people who are there as the boots on the ground uh, know better how to use things. And like we, we've often talked before about the challenge of what missionary work looks like in the 21st century, um, that rarely are there times where uh, me, a um, uh, Western Pennsylvania resident uh, white American, will have the know-how for rebuilding a village after a hurricane or something like that so it doesn't necessarily be me who physically goes to some other place to help rebuild like i'm the expert there's going to be times where nope we should pool our resources send them people who are already there know how to help rebuild the village or build the school or dig the well or whatever but also as you say there's times when it does need to be me face to face uh because that then it's something about how my relationship with the neighbor has changed
I, I guess I'd even point to the the really slippery slope about whether we are using our resources or our resources are using us. Um, and maybe the, we could say, yeah, it's, if you are in charge and you're calling the shots on using your resources well, that's, that's not automatically sin. When you're letting your money run the show and control you, clearly something's gone wrong. The difficulty is rarely does an alarm bell go off saying we're switching modes and now my money's going to be using me. And we're really good at persuading ourselves that uh, we're all, we always have the best intentions and we're always using our resources uh, instead of letting them run us, or like the old line goes, or do we possess our possessions, or do they possess us? Um, and that's a subtle thing. And I, again, I think that's part of why Jesus, as well as this line from First Timothy, really are warning about um, it is a very, very easy, slippery slope and a very subtle transition from I'm using my resources well to I need to guard and protect the resources so that they'll be there for some future time. So I need to make my pile of money bigger and bigger. And we don't realize we're doing it. Churches do this all the time when like, if you've got a moment where you uh, have a, a surplus at the end of your budget year, it's great to save it. You don't have to fritter it all away, but man, it becomes really easy then. Well, we can't spend any of our savings for, you know, uh, helping the, the neighbors in the city with their project or starting the community garden or the food bank or whatever. We have to hold on to it for our future. And the difficult thing is there's a certain prudence about that that makes sense. But on the other hand, you really quickly said we're not trusting God will provide for our future as community. We can't take care of our neighbor. We have to trust the money that will be there for us in the future. And man, that's really difficult to, to see how quickly we subtly shift into um, trusting our money rather than trusting God. And I've seen churches twist that a little bit where they've had you know, those large endowments and savings mm -hmm. and things. And so they keep pulling at that because it's there. Right. And, you know, thinking that it's always going to be there. And so then giving starts to go down mm -hmm. because, well, why do I need to give if the church has all this money that we can pull from? Mm -hmm. And again, it, it, it's, a, it's that trust issue of, you know, yes, that money is there and God has blessed us with this. Someday it won't be there. But also that's that speaks to our personal relationship with money and with God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, am I willing to part with my money, even though I know the church may not need it right this minute? I think this gets at another reason why the love of money or the putting trust in money as a particular idol is so, so slippery and insidious mm -hmm. is that there's an awful lot of conventional wisdom that um, wants to treat it as always good to be mindful about saving and and we, we don't we don't like talk about hoarding money but we sure do like talk about how important it is to save money and mm -hmm. saving sounds like yes that's always wise and prudent of course you should save money and as someone who has to manage you know the finances of a household as a grown-up in the house they're sort of yeah we have to make sure that there's enough money for paying the bills and for having groceries i, I get that and yet like i like like i say it's really really hard to discern where is the line between I'm being a good steward of my resources and I've started putting my trust in the pile of resources and therefore I can't share with my neighbor, help somebody else out, use these resources. Nope, I always must guard and protect them. That's, mm -hmm. th that's the way idols talk. You have to protect the golden calf so the golden calf can protect you. Um, and real, real quickly, um, it becomes something that is, is diabolical. 
I love, and I don't know, this is truly Wesley or is this one of those things that's just attributed to him. Um, but there's a phrase that I've heard for years and years and years, at least attributed to, to John Wesley, earn all you can, give all you can, save all you can, maybe mm-hmm. in a slightly different order. But like the idea is, yeah, work hard, earn the money, take, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself, put some of it away for the future in case something happens. That's okay. But give it all too. And and there's a story, again, this might be lore about Wesley, I don't know, um, that when he died, he had six pence left in his pocket for each mm-hmm. one of his pallbearers. Mm-hmm. You know, so he lived that, like he earned yeah. the money throughout his life and he yeah. saved, but he also gave enough away so that when he died, all he had left is the people, you know, money to pay his pallbearers. Yeah, yeah. That that kind of reminds me of the parable where Jesus and his disciples are hanging out in the temple and they see a widow come in and give the last of her money. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like lifting her up. And um, I often think we get this, this wrong about this parable because I think Jesus is actually saying, look at this broken system that we have that she just gave. All she had to live all on. That, all that she had to live on. Like, she shouldn't have to do that. Like, she should. Like, right. this, this, she needs help. Like, we yeah. should be, like, I'm not, I'm not describing this as well as I had wished in my head. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I get your point because the, the whole, that whole scene is the contrast between the people who are giving their big donations, but it doesn't, there's not that sense of sacrifice because it's, it's, you know, relatively small potatoes for them. And that this is for the upkeep of the temple. I mean, like, to be very honest, Jesus doesn't have a super high, like Jesus and his relationship with the temple is kind of like, Mm -hmm. you don't really need it. It's going to get destroyed in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed it. Like Jesus is not one for, you need to have big fancy buildings anyway. Um, But, but it does seem to be like, yeah, this shouldn't seem right that this widow has nothing, especially because if I remember right in the synoptic gospels where the story appears, Jesus has just criticized the respectable religious people who devour widows houses and for the sake of appearances pray long prayers so he just you know talked about like look at the people who are you know showing off with their religiosity talking about how great they are at praying and giving and Mm -hmm. in the meantime their elderly neighbor is not able to put food on her table and then here's this actual widow who's putting in these coins and i think i think you're right part of what jesus is saying is both maybe to see her in a positive light, but it's also scorning all the other people who are like, you should be taking care of the people who have needs among you. And this woman should not be in a position of putting her last two coins and now doesn't know what, you know, what she's going to do or what, you know, what she's going to eat. Um, I think both can be true in that story. Thanks, Steve. That, that was exactly what I wanted to say. So thank you. <laughs> I have been reading um, com- completely Apart from us having this conversation in this series, I've been reading um, a compilation of the writings of Jacques Ellal lately, who is a 20th century writer. Um, and I was really surprised when I came across, he, he, this, there's a passage of his where he talks about um, this, this whole notion about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. And he makes a really important point that has stuck with me. Um, he says, we must not take love to mean a vague sentiment or more or less valid passion 
In reality, in the Bible, love is utterly totalitarian. It comes from the entire person. It involves the whole person and binds the whole person with that distinction. Love reaches down to the roots of human beings and does not leave them intact. It leads to the identification and assimilation between the lover and the beloved. And I think for him, that's why ultimately the the scriptures have this warning against the love of money is that it eventually love becomes consuming love has you know you you become you become like what you love and that's why in some sense part of the uh christian tradition is to say loving god shapes us and makes us more like god in some way makes us more like the character of christ because eventually we become like what we love um and that to chase after money money is always sort of has this sort of like inward bent of seeking after its own good and making a bigger and bigger pile for its own sake um that, that to me it helps like underscore why this is such a particularly um dangerous power in the world i i, I find that fascinated to think of it as what are we rooted in right because mm-hmm. money is the root of all evil right right, being right. rooted in love yeah like mm-hmm. where are our roots what are they tapping into because yeah. like you know my uh we're currently experiencing a bit of a drought where i live like we haven't had rain in weeks right and um i had just planted some new bushes so like i've been having to water them from my hose uh to try to keep them alive so that they'll establish and their roots will like get in into the groundwater here like you know i've been watering them a lot keeping a close eye on them and i keep looking at the big giant tree in my backyard and how it's fine like it's beautiful this year and that's because it's 30 something years old its root system is well established it is tapped into the groundwater it's it's good like because its root system is good um but like that's not going to necessarily be the case for all of the plants that their root systems aren't necessarily tapping into good sources of water. You know, there are certainly places uh, where the groundwater has been contaminated. And so if your root system is tapping into that, it's, that's not healthy for the plant. So where are our roots? What are they tapping into? And are they something that's going to feed us in good health? Or is it something that's going to just make us sicker and more broken? Yeah. This reminds me, too, of uh, I don't know if either of you saw the movie, like not quite 20 years old now, maybe called Idiocracy. Um, It was by Mike Judge. And it sort of imagined like um, a future where all of society has become completely dumbed down. Like it's 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 pretty lowbrow in some sense, but it's sort of this caricature of like what happens when the the worst and dumbest of our impulses become all that there is. And there's this scene in this alternate future where um, everybody's been so affected by corporate branding for this sports drink called Brondo that um, they're they're watering the crops with it and the crops aren't thriving. And the there comes this, this person from the from our time, from the early 21st century, um, played maybe by Luke Wilson, I think, um, who is like, well, why are you not putting water on the crops? And they're like, because Brondo has electrolytes. Well, what's that? Well, it's what plants crave. And it's like this circular logic of here's a thing that looks like it will quench your thirst and it doesn't. And the more you drink it, the thirstier you get. And the more you pour it on your crops, the more it kills the crops, even though it looks like a reasonable facsimile of what the genuine article is. And I, I to me, it feels like there's that same sense of um, if I pour um, 
sports drink or Mountain Dew on my plants. That will not make them grow better. It might kill them. Um, even though it looks, it's a relatively clear liquid like water is, and it looks close enough to the real thing that you might think, oh, this must be better. And it's packaged shinier and it's more appealing in that way. And I guess I think some of that is what's going on in the, the tension between God and mammon as this personified you know, source of security and strength for wealth. That wealth presents itself like a better god than god because you know it's it's got electrolytes you know, it, it promises us you know shiny things and security and popularity and uh you know the respect of others when you've got a bigger pile of it um and god's care for us is invisible and i don't get to brag about it and i don't get to pretend i've earned god's care or love that in some ways part of what makes it so appealing is the very things that also make it not the real thing that make it not genuine Maybe we should also come around full circle here and say, as much as the Bible, especially in the New Testament, has a lot of strong warnings about the misuse of wealth and how easily we slide into misusing it, there are examples of both in Jesus' storytelling and parables, as well as in the witness of the New Testament church of people collecting, pooling resources and using them well. Like I think about how much in Paul's letters uh there is this recurring theme of when he's taking up a collection of money to give to the people in jerusalem who are living through a famine and so you'll find a number of his letters in galatians and the corinthian correspondence uh where like toward the back half of the letter he'll be like okay remember i'm taking up this collection and he'll remind them our you know our brothers and sisters in jerusalem are going without right now and so it's our obligation to provide for them so that they can survive um, and that means nothing short of pooling money. And that's what they can send. I mean, in the ancient world, there is no let's all take a mission trip to Jerusalem. It's Paul's like, I'm going to be getting on the boat and um, I'm going to be I'll bring along whatever you've sent me. Um, so, like, clearly there's some ways where Paul, the apostle, sees the sharing and pooling of resources in a positive way rather than just those people in Jerusalem are left to their own devices. They got to take care of themselves or they're lazy. I also think that we're called to be stewards of what God has given us. Right. And I think that that is a pretty broad spectrum, right? Like God has given us the planet. We are meant to steward it, not use it up for, but like manage it in a healthy, responsible way. Um, but also we're called to be stewards of the money that we are in charge of. Um, I'm thinking in particular about Matthew 25, where Jesus tells a parable of a master who gives um, gives a bunch of servants a bunch of money. And yeah. like the, the different servants get different amounts of money. And they're like, so one of them is given like five talents another is given two and talents is like just a lot of money right? these are like huge exorbitant amounts of money yeah. right mm -hmm. and, the, and the last servant is given like one or something like that which is still a fortune <laughs> it's still a lot of money right so they all go off and like the first two invest their money and they like like plug it into the economy and they grow it and it like benefits a lot of people right because this money was being put to work and then so when the master returned, they were able to go, oh, yes, I took your money and I grew it. And now you have this amount of money. Um, you know, here you go. And then the last one said, you know, I know you're a harsh master. So I buried <laughs> yeah. my talent. I didn't do anything with it. So here I, I unburied it here. Take what is yours. And, um, you know, so I in that was like the wrong thing to do, like. Yeah. 
we're yeah. we're meant to to work with our money and our, and use it for the benefit of others and for the world. Um, I always I always wish every time I read this parable though that I wish that there was a fourth servant who had gone out and like used his money and invested it or whatever and lost. Uh-huh, to find and out. I wanted to, I want to see how in this parable how the master who we often attribute to being God mm-hmm. reacts to a servant who tried mm-hmm. and failed. Yeah. Instead yeah. of just burying the talent. Like I wish yeah. we had that, but we don't. Although there's a part of me that wonders if if there's maybe a dimension of the uh, parable being like if you attempt to do anything with the resources God has given you, it will do something good in the world. You may not be able to measure it or quantify. It. And that, to me, that's, that's that may be part of why you get three instead of just two, that there's one guy who takes a smaller amount of money and invests it and makes a smaller amount of money back, but he makes something and he's not chastised. Well, how come he didn't make as much as the other guy? You know, it's, yeah, you, you invested it. You made something great. Thank you. Um, and I guess I, I wonder if the, the critical thing in the, the metaphor you've used there about being stewards is the recognition that a steward doesn't take care of what's their own, but what belongs to somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly in that parable where they're all servants uh, hired by the landowner or the master, the household or whatever, who realize it's not their money that they're working with. It's somebody else's. Um, and that there's an important difference between it's my money. I have to take care of it because it's mine. And this is something God has entrusted for the use of the betterment of people around. So if it's I need to grow my money pile pretty quickly, it becomes clear that's about you're serving the money. Um, but if it's here's this resource, how do we use it in ways that do good in the world? That will mean sometimes spending it. That will mean sometimes saving it. That will mean a variety. And the moment I start to get stingy or cautious about, no, I can't spend any of it. It's almost like um, like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, right? It, it, once, <laughs> once it becomes the precious, um, like you could tell something has gone terribly wrong. Um, I guess I even think, too, there's another parable Jesus tells in Matthew, Matthew 20, about the um, the landowner who hires different people throughout the day um, and they all get paid the same in the end. And it seems to me like that parable has a lot to do with that justice in the end means everybody should get to eat. And that those people who were hired at the end of the day, if they don't get hired by somebody, their family goes hungry tomorrow. And that the landowner who realized in the end, it's my wealth, I can do what I want with it, sees that the right thing to do is to make sure all the neighbors are taken care of rather than I could make, I could save some money for myself by not paying them as much. But he understands the point of the wealth isn't just I need to have a bigger pile of money at the end of the day, but I need my neighbors to be well fed. Mm. And that that approach to seeing our resources as not really mine ever, but always God's. And at best, they are on loan. At best, they are entrusted. That metaphor of a steward is a huge deal because it makes it clear that it's not mine forever. It's entrusted to me for a time. How do I use it well? And I think that may be a really a critical uh, safeguard against money becoming a, an end in and of itself. And I've never thought about this this way, but I've been thinking about this the whole time we've been talking. Money in itself is neutral. Like it's neither good nor bad. It's you need to have it to live. And I think, see that parable you just mentioned, you know, the parable of the vineyard shows us that neutrality, you know, the neutrality of money because you know it's all being and i'm going to pull this here I, I can't explain this the way i have it like in my head 
Um, but you know, he sees it as being able to be used to help others. Mm -hmm. Um, even though, yeah, he could have saved it and kept some of it for himself. Um, you know, so he's using either way, if he would have paid those people that he hired in the last hour, just for that hour mm-hmm. and the ones he hired at the beginning of the day for the full day, that would have been a good use of money. Because he gets he work everybody for everybody equally. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so it, again, it's still a good use of money, even though people complained about it, mm-hmm. you know, he used the money for good, no matter mm-hmm. how he ended up paying his workers. I guess I wonder, and maybe this is one of those, like, I'm not sure where I'm headed. This may be heresy, so get your digital rocks ready to throw at me. But you raised a question I'd never really thought about. Like, And I, I get that idea of money being neutral, or at least not inherently evil or inherently good. So I, mm-hmm. I, I guess I want to say that. And But you said we can't live without money. And there's a piece to me that goes, yeah, in the world in which we live, in the society in which we live, it's not an option for me to barter with shiny rocks I find in the yard or cool feathers or things like that. Money is part of, if I'm going to live in this world and I'm not going to completely withdraw into like being the, the lone hermit in the cabin or something like that. But when you get these glimpses of what creation is meant to be both in the ancient memory of the genesis storytelling and in the new creation language in in like say a revelation 21 which some of us like um there isn't imagery of and everybody's got piles of gold and that's how you know things are great like the the eden picture is not like adam and eve have to buy their goods from the talking serpent or something like that there is abundance and there's not this concern for will the money be there for us whatever you need is there and it's it's almost like the 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 garden itself provides what is necessary so there's still the sense of your stewards but the money is just at best a middle person you know in our economy mm-hmm. the money doesn't have value except it we we all decide to believe it has money and in the new creation there's not that need for it either and there are these glimpses along the way like i'm picturing like isaiah 55 that you know come to the waters you who are thirsty get uh you know bread and wine without money without price why would you spend your money on what doesn't satisfy this imagery of like god giving away freely without price there's some hope i have of what what will make the new creation the new creation is not that i'll have a pile of money but that we will no longer need those things any longer and if that's true even if for this lifetime i do find myself uh tethered to using money because it's useful as long as there's this piece of me that remembers it's not a forever thing. There's a lot of things I've made accommodations with in life. And uh, that's one of those accommodations rather than something that is woven into the fabric of how the world is supposed to be. Maybe. And I, I don't know if, if that's um, a useless point, if that's just me sort of navel gazing or, but like, it feels to me like that's an important piece of the story at both the beginning and the end of the scriptures. And, and I get what you're saying, Steve. I like that. I, it also makes me think like this is how money is a way that God has used what we have created to better God's kingdom, you know, because we, we use money to do ministry, to do, you know, yes, people have used it for evil as well, but you know, God is taking a part of what we have put value into and redeems a little strong of a word yeah but like maybe it's almost like um that we might say the government as well is one of those like 
there there's not an assumption that there has to be like in in the new creation there's not a picture of like there's going to be elections and a senate and things like that yeah it's in the world in which we live having civil government seems like a non-negotiable you're going to have to have some kind of government we're all going to have chaos mm -hmm. and yet it's an accommodation that we can say is a necessary reality for living in you know anything more organized than you know uh, a, a household but um that there's an awful lot of temptations when you lump power together and you lump wealth together, it becomes a whole lot more easy to to misuse it or to abuse it. Can I ask in each of your lives, in maybe as like as grown up adults as well as in church leadership, um, what are things that you do or find helpful to walk that line or to avoid letting money and wealth become an idol, becoming a, a root of evil? Uh, and what are things that keep you grounded in using it well or wisely rather than being possessed by your possessions? So I fully believe I have the spiritual gift of generosity. And so, and part of that comes from me just being blessed financially throughout all my life. And so it is very easy for me to give away my money. And, and so I like to think, and, and maybe... Maybe I'm a little bit more stingy than I should be with it, that it does not have a, a strong hold on me. I realize that it it may, because there are times where I do get stingy about it. Um, not so much in the giving sense, it's just I won't spend money on myself for things that I may or may not need. Um, so for for me, that's, like I said, I like to think that I'm not that way. And maybe that needs some more reflection <laughs> to make sure that what I want to think about myself is actually true. And maybe just the action or the the discipline of doing that self-check-in is a part of how we prevent money from climbing up on the throne in our hearts. Mm -hmm. That when it's when we stop being reflective that uh, we, yeah, I'm fine. I'm sure I'm fine. <laughs> that things are not so good. Huh? Right. Are there things that you found helpful in your life or your ministry, Sarah, that either help you or your household or congregations you've worked with to avoid turning their wealth into a God without knowing it? I I personally struggle with this one. Like it, it's it's one of those things where I I have a small family, like I have two kids, and I live in a part of the country where things are more expensive than other parts of the country where I have previously lived and served. Um, and we are currently like, we're just, my family's at this point in our life right now where money is a resource that is more scarce than yeah. what we would like it to be. And so we, we struggle. Like we have a deep desire to fully tithe, which is where we give 10% to the church, 10% um, of our income to the church. Um, but like some months that, 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 that hurts, like it hurts to give the 10% because it's, it's like, uh, like one of our kids need new shoes. Oh. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we can tie this month and get new shoes. Um, and it's really hard to find good shoes at the thrift store. So like this is actually has to be like a Walmart purchase, not a, um, 
not just a thrift store find. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's really, really difficult sometimes to be to, to tithe. Yeah. Um, but that being said, like we try to be as generous as we can where when and where we can. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean tithing. Sometimes it means, you know, something that takes time or energy instead of money. Um, but even then that sometimes feels like that those resources are pretty scarce too, because of the whole lack of money thing. I work more jobs than I would particularly like at the moment. Like, and so it all kind of wraps itself into each other in a very anxious cycle. But I'm also grateful for this time in my life that I'm feeling these things and I'm being super self-aware and realizing all of these points of tension and contention and um, because it's giving me greater insight to some of the congregations that I am and have served where they have found it hard to be generous. And I hadn't previously fully understood understood that but I do at the moment like I fully get it because I'm living it of like yeah it's really difficult to give your 10% back to the synod or to churchwide because you kind of need that 10% to pay the electric bill yeah and then you need that 10% that you have like to to pay a salary and like there there just isn't often sometimes there's just not enough money for the things that you need it to like pay in this society of like where we have utilities we have debts we have you know all of these things and so all of those things knowing all of this and knowing that there just isn't quite enough as much money as you need you need to be really intentional about how you spend your money and I think that that's something I'm really leaning into of like intentionality with money of like, if you look away for just a minute, you're going to spend money that you don't have. But if you are intentional and you're careful, there is enough, there's enough money right now. Like, right. Like it's, and, and I know that even that is coming from a place of privilege because there are plenty of folks in the world where it, they don't have enough. Even mm-hmm. with paying attention and being yeah. super intentional, there just isn't enough money. So I think that 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 question is something I personally struggle with right now, um, just because of life circumstances. Yeah. I appreciate what you said about how that personal experience gives you insight into church life so that I mean, sometimes the temptation for us as pastors and religious professionals is to badmouth church folks and church leaders. Oh, they're just not being generous. Why won't they give more? And it's because people who care about their congregations uh, don't want to see their congregation die and they want to support the why. I mean, like they want to help, but they're also wanting to make sure that the lights stay on at the church. And uh, if you if you've ever been in the place of wondering which bill do you pay, the one that seems essential is going to get the yeah, we'll pay the one that we need and the things that are wants or hypotheticals or I won't you know, maybe see the value in this in, until the future are the ones you put on the back burner. And again, let's be totally honest here. Sometimes church hierarchy doesn't feel like there's a lot of bang for a buck. It feels like the money disappears and goes off into a black hole, um, even if there is good that's done and it you know helps feed people half a world away by pooling our resources or you know whatever. It's not just 
going to overhead and bureaucracy, but it's easy to imagine that. And and that does give a real sense of humanity toward uh, even those difficult knockdown, drag out budget fights that can happen in the church when uh, pastors often are the ones who think they have to goad stingy church leaders. And that's not really it. It's everybody cares, but it's it's hard sometimes to say, are we going to trust that there will be enough if we also give beyond the wider church or to a mission project or whatever? What about you, Steve? Well, I, I guess um, two things come to mind. Um, w- one is um, we talked about this in the first couple of episodes of this series, and it feels like it, we've come back around to the question of control. And to me, it feels like a part of why we have such a hard time um, letting go of our money is um, money gives us power and control. And there's a certain degree of control in our lives that is necessary. I want to be able to control that the lights will stay on. I want to be able to control that uh, my children will have clothes and food and things like that. Um, And it's just that it is very, very, very hard to see the line where I've gone beyond the minimum amount of control I need in my life to where I just want control for control's sake because I'm uncomfortable with with not being in power. Um, So it feels to me like because I know at some level my animal instinct of self-preservation are not going to be overridden, that what I need to spend more energy and time practicing is how to practice letting go of control of things. And that means there's going to be times of Yep, I could either have a bigger pile of money for the future in which I'd be in control, or I can learn to dethrone the power of that money now by, nope, get rid of some of it now, because that's one of the ways it doesn't get a foothold. Um, And that's tough, because that again means like, what looks like foolishness it looks like why are you spending money on this thing you know this you know this charitable thing or this church like and and that's tough because um it sometimes means looking not particularly prudent or and that and that's difficult because i don't want to i don't also want to raise my children to be financially foolish and to just you know be reckless either um i guess the other thing that comes to mind is uh in the midst of our conversation i was reminded of a poem of uh, alice walker's um and it's radical to me uh, and i don't know that i've fully taken in just how like burn the system down radical it really is um but there's something in it that keeps poking at me and so it's voices like hers or wendell berry's that keep doing this to me but she says this poem is called we alone and it goes we alone can devalue gold by not caring if it falls or rises in the marketplace wherever there is gold there's a chain you know and if your chain is gold so much the worse for you Feathers, shells, and C-shaped stones are all as rare. This could be our revolution, to love what is plentiful as much as what is scarce. And I just love that idea that part of why money gets the, the hold over us is we all sort of accept because money is scarce, you know, make it gold, make it, you know, dollar bills, make it whatever. Its value is because it's rare and therefore you got to get as much of this scarce commodity as possible. And she sort of points out, you don't have to play that game. I mean, to some degree, if you're going to participate in a wider economy, there's a certain amount of sticking your toe in the waters there. But we can, I mean, I think part of what Jesus keeps coming to in so many of his stories is that ultimately money is meaningless and that eventually its 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 value crumbles. That's certainly Ecclesiastes, but that's certainly Jesus in the parable of the rich fool, right? So instead of, you know, that, that parable where the guy's going to, he's got this amazing windfall crop, and instead of sharing it with his neighbors, he thinks the prudent thing is to build bigger barns to store it up. And the end of that parable is like, nope, your life's over today. And, you know, all that stuff you piled up, what was the value of it? Um, 
the, in these moments, Jesus sort of pulls back the curtain and goes, it's completely worthless. It's all a sham. We all just collectively agree to believe that it has value. And that's convenient sometimes for things like keeping the lights on or paying the water bill or buying your kid's shoes. But sometimes we forget. And maybe the church is supposed to be this community that keeps pulling the curtain back and revealing that the Wizard of Oz is really just a guy pulling levers. And like, it turns out money is only has value because we all agree it does. And that means it doesn't have ultimate power. And anything we can do to kind of destabilize that may be helpful, but it, but it's also kind of subversive. So have we solved it? Have we solved how money is evil? Well, I think have we've we at least it? I think we've at least navigated what it does and doesn't mean, and the challenge is living it out somewhere in that gray space in between. But that seems like a that's that's the lifelong challenge. Yeah. So, so for folks who've been with us listening, we invite you to join us next time and uh, we'll have more conversation on things that aren't in the Bible next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.